Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for today, and as usual, I am joined by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Also joining us is David Valancourt from the GMP Collective and our resident quality control expert. Thanks for joining again, David. What's new in your GMP world? It's awesome to be back, Jayhan, just keeping products safe and uh, advancing the industry. Fantastic. Um, and joining us, uh, I believe, for his first episode, Dr. Josh Hartzell. Uh, if you don't know about him, multiple Cannabis Cup winner, operated one of the first cannabis testing labs in the country, um, recently founded a psychedelics company, uh, which is the first psychedelics company to be listed on the stock exchange. And for those of you who love trivia, he was also featured in a Wu-Tang Clan music video featuring Ghostface. Thank you, Josh, for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. It's uh, great to be here. Appreciate it. All right. Awesome. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. First up, we're going to play a game about the life and times of Raphael Meshulam and celebrating his life, legacy, and some of his achievements. Um, I know both Josh and I, our mentors, <laughs> worked with him on many projects as well, and he passed away recently. For our second segment, we're going to discuss an article about THC testing and the inflated THC values that everyone loves. And third, we're going to discuss a peer-reviewed article about the economics of 420, literally that day, and what it does to the cannabis industry's economy. All right, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today's game, we're going to call it, I don't know, Meshulam Did It, or The Life and Times of Raphael Meshulam. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Meshulam uh, received numerous awards for his achievements in the research field over the last 60 or so years. Um, he's most notable for discovering numerous plant cannabinoids, creating synthetic versions of hundreds more, um, and also helping to discover and name the endocannabinoids um, as well, uh, such as anandamide and, and 2-AG. He's had numerous, uh, I think he's received over 25 professional awards. Um, and so today we're gonna play a little trivia game with the group about his life and times. Uh, hopefully you don't have to use the internet for this. All right, so our first question has three options and it's about his early life. Um, so, as some of you may know, he was born in 1930, and in 1930, some things were happening in Europe. Um, there was a guy standing on tables screaming about things, and so people ended up fleeing out of Europe, and, and his family ended up fleeing uh, you know, in the early 40s to Israel. So, which of the following is true about Raphael Meshulam's early life? Was he A, found as an infant in a field of hemp in Romania? Was he born to a Sephardic Jewish family in Bulgaria? Or was he adopted by a CIA operative in World War II? David, you seem to be smiling the most. I'm going to go with you. <laughs> Is it possible that's two answers? I mean, Romania and Bulgaria are really close to each other. So we, are we confident that it's one over the other? I'm, I'm confident in all of these choices. Um, <laughs> But you know, we gotta. You know, he he did discover you know the correct structure of THC. He did purify a lot of compounds. Where did that inspiration come from? You mm -hmm. know, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know I'm going to go with uh, B regarding uh, being born in uh, in Bulgaria, but I you know I, th- I think there's a little bit of, of A in there that maybe we just don't know about. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, all right, anyone else? This question is for let's say uh, 200 points, uh, 200 how to launch an industry podcast points. I don't know if anyone else wants to take a guess. Remember, if you're wrong, you lose points. It's like Jeopardy. I was going to say number two for sure. Because he, well, he's at Hebrew University. I mean, it makes sense that he was raised by uh, family there. Seems reasonable. I, I don't yeah. The other ones seem, um, you know, a little outlandish. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I Maybe. I mean, he had an outlandish life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, as much as I would, as much as it would be interesting for a or c to be true especially c especially the cia thing that that's that would just truly be a a twist to the tail but um i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it straight and narrow with my colleagues and go with b as well i think that sounds perfectly reasonable that is true he was indeed born to a sephardic jewish family in bulgaria that ended up emigrating to israel or fleeing depending on your perspective on history all right um up next uh when he got to israel he started off as a researcher but he had to get his research material somewhere and his research investigations in the early 60s into the what is the active ingredient quote-unquote of cannabis and what are the other components in there and what do they do all started with getting access to five kilos of Lebanese hash Uh, that's over 10 pounds for those of you who do not use the metric system so if you were in Israel in 1960s you might have seen a strange looking chemist carrying a briefcase uh, that smelled distinctly of cannabis because it was loaded with hash. So on the way to his laboratory, carrying this 10 pounds of Lebanese hash in it, where did he get this hash that launched his research career? Did he grow it? Did he buy it? Or did the police give it to him? So where did he get his uh, the, 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 the seed capital, as it were, in hashish to start his isolation and purification experiments? Did he grow the cannabis to make the hash? Did he buy it off the street? Or did the police give it to him? I think the police gave it to him. But I think David knows. I, I feel like I've heard it. I feel like I've heard this story. I kind of think it's the police, too. Uh, but I don't, I don't know it firmly, but that just rings true to me also. I'll concur with the police, and um, hopefully I'm not wrong. My recollection of probably one of the greatest films of all time in my opinion, <laughs> especially with Ralph Mishulamon, the, the scientist that's available online. All right. It, so for those of you who think Raphael Mishulam grew cannabis plants, you're wrong. He didn't. He also, you know, he's a he's an academic researcher. Where would the money come from to buy anything important in life? So you know, <laughs> the yeah, correct answer is true. The police gave it to him. And it turned out that everything they did was technically illegal at the time. And so the police just like on a piece of paper, okay, here's some hashish, here you go. Uh, Out the door you go with over 10 pounds that we confiscated. Because back in the day, they just throw it over a big barbed wire concrete fence. And, you know, here's your hash over the fence from uh, the the other side. And then someone throw cash on the other side. And the police would 
occasionally catch these people, but he literally went to the police, asked for some for research. Um, they gave it to him, and he just took it on public transportation, uh, which uh, would never happen today because it's all tightly controlled. So that is um, an amazing legend. So following up to that, circa 1963, Meshulam is trying to get a little bit of money to make what would be some of the most amazing discoveries that would come to influence our industry. So, in 1963, he applies for his first NIH grant, National Institutes of Health, and it was denied. And the reasoning from the NIH in the early 1960s of why they denied him his grant to study uh, cannabis was it the NIH? Was the reason the NIH does not fund researchers outside the U.S.? Did the NIH say nobody uses marijuana in the United States? It's not important to us. Or did he want too much money? So again, those choices are, what are the reasons that NIH gave in the early 60s? Was it A, the NIH doesn't fund researchers outside of the United States? Is it B, no one uses marijuana in the United States? Or was it C, he wanted too much money? 1963, NIH's reasoning, why, why would they turn down a grant? What, what do you think they told this uh, 30-something-year-old researcher? Uh, who's happened to come across a bunch of hashish and wants to purify and understand the active ingredients in this substance. I think cannabis use was pretty popular at the time <laughs> in the U.S. Um, and, and I just want to be blind to it. Um, so I'm just, I don't think it's B. I think there was a lot of learning that went on in the early uh, funding stages because a lot of it's funded by NIDA, which is the National Institute for Drug Abuse. And if you don't frame your grant proposal in a context where it's showing the harms of drugs, then they won't fund you. But since he wasn't in the United States as well, I think that obviously the answer is A. But I don't know. We'll see. All, all good discussions, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You know, these are all things that I, everything you guys are saying are things I ruminated when I first heard about his initial failed grant publishing or grant um, approval. Uh, David, any, any thoughts? I mean, at first glance, I think they're all plausible, ridiculous reasons that the uh, U.S. NIH would deny it. Um, I feel like maybe, yeah, ruling out the too much money because, I don't know, grants are ridiculously expensive and I've never seen that be a, be a reason. Um, uh, yeah, the no, uh, same thing Nigam just said about no one uses marijuana in the United States that might be a blind uh, statement by the NIH because of the world we lived in around the time of the Schaefer report coming out, but I, I don't want to think they're, they were that, that blind. Um, and as you mentioned, Josh, a lot of research was going on in the time before the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. So it's, I guess it's got to be A. I'm in agreement. All right. So this is a, this is a wonderful time in the United States. And I say that a little sarcastically, you know, you could drink and smoke and drive in your car and nothing really mattered. It wasn't until again, the seventies that, that we had like the Controlled substances act. And I'm not quite sure when they banned drinking in cars, <laughs> but um, <laughs> there was a time when people could do those, those types of things. Um, so in 1963, you know, the NIH did fund projects, the NIH, which includes, you know, NIDA under it, basically, um, they're all, they share a huge block of funding. Um, you know, they did fund most of the research in the United States and abroad as well. So 
I used to think they didn't fund international researchers, but it turns out that they did make they do make a lot of exceptions for that too. So it is not a. Uh, it also wasn't because he wanted too much money. The reason that he was denied was that the NIH said that this isn't of interest to us because it's 1963. Who uses marijuana in the United States? We don't. Nobody uses it here. What? So they did not uh, fund his grant at that time. And it wasn't until a senator's son was busted for weed that then there was an urge to understand it because they had to answer a very important question like, does single use of marijuana make you permanently insane? That was a question that they needed to fund. So they had to go find this guy again and start to investigate these important questions that were in no way politically motivated. Um. <laughs> if I recall, didn't they, um, didn't the U.S., was it NIDA or NIH, like actually bought some of the THC isolate from Mishulman and shipped it over and that was their like stash for quite a while? Yeah, because he purified the active ingredient um, and it allowed people to study it, um, make versions of it, study stereoselectivity to look for receptors and things like that. Absolutely. He was, you know, he, he supplied a lot of researchers with these novel compounds. I like how I didn't even, I actually didn't even lodge a formal guess on that one. I just said, <laughs> I don't think B is true. That's all I said. And then turns out, so show, shows what yeah, I know. Yeah, about it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. And don't worry, I've been taking notes on all your points here. Um, it's so far, it's okay, dead. Good. I was wondering you about each that. have 6,372 points. <laughs> uh, I don't know how it worked out that way. It's amazing. All right. So we're gonna do we're gonna we're gonna end out this little fun trivia segment uh, with playing the closest to the right number without going over. This is the Price is Right rules, and I'm just looking at this century, just the last 20 years of Raphael Mishulam's life, from when he was like 70 to 92. So we're talking just the last 20 years. Um, how many publications does he appear as an author on? And I'm gonna let you guys think about this. Is it you know? You could say 50, you could say 300, but again, it's just the last 20 years. Not not his entire career since the 1960s, but just this century. Um, uh, again, the, the, the twilight of his career. Um, you know, uh, you guys, I, you know, you can change your guess if you want, but, you know, I, the, the, the price is right rules here. So if anyone wants to just throw out a number, you know... Um, you know, about how many publications is he an author of in just in the last 20 years? Not his whole 60-year career of publishing, but just the last 20. I'm going to say 250. Uh, clarifying question. Uh, does that include, co that's like co-authorship, not yep, just primary yep. authorship? co-authorship. And I will say this, uh, in case, Josh, you want to change your answer, but it's a good guess, I would say, uh, is that this is based on PubMed.gov. If you go in and you search him as an author, just for the last 20 years, how many publications <laughs> pop up? Two fifty. Two fifty. Yeah, it's um. Well, sometimes uh, professors get a lot of publications because I mean, some professors have fifty grad students in their lab, so you know that the numbers get really high. Um, well, also people try to milk the Machulam name, so they just want his name on those papers. So. I'm sure he's gotten a lot of papers where he didn't even do anything. Check my data. I'll add your name. Review. I'll add your yeah. Yeah, he probably had a barrage of like uh, just a laundry list of. Will you, can I be on your paper? Can I be on your paper? Josh is saying ten plus a year. 
Maybe oh, more. Wow. What am I gonna guess? I kind of want to go last, Dave. What are you? What are you gonna guess? <laughs> Price is right strategy, right there, Nigam. Uh, That's right. God. I've been playing these games for a while. Uh, you know, let's do uh, eighty. I'm gonna do eighty. Eighty for for Dave. Unless Nigam goes with eighty-one, then I'm coming back. All right. <laughs> so we have. Uh, number of publications that Raphael Mishulam published just in the last 20 years, not his entire career, just the last 20 years that you can find on PubMed.gov, searching his name. Josh Hartzell says 250. Dave says 80. And all eyes turn to Dr. Nigam Aurora as he lines up the putt. Um, Will he sink it? He has the advantage here. I'm going to say... Yeah. Yeah. You get to go. Do you I? get to... The advantage to be a real oh. jerk and go in between their numbers. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's what that's what everyone does when I when I'm uh, when I'm running the game. That's what everyone does when when I'm the one real counting strategy. the points. Um, yeah, I'm not going to stress it. I'm going to say 142. Wow, very precise. He's looking I it like up right it. now. Like <laughs> Wait, you see okay. you see my hands? Look. <laughs> All right. Um, in the last 20 years, just this century, according to PubMed.gov, Raphael Meshulam was an author on 178 publications, which means Nigga Marora oh. with the 142 guess is correct. <laughs> now, Josh, I have to say, uh, 250, I mean, if, if PubMed listed every abstract he was on, <laughs> like 50 a year, I think you would be <laughs> like much closer. Um, but again, it's it's PubMed rules here. That's what we were going with. Well, I was just thinking, you know, I know um, people that are that have, you know, 70, 80 publications that are just not Raphael Machulam, you know, so yeah. I just thought this guy's got to be publishing oh, almost yeah. every month, right? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, you never know. I feel like I was still close enough. I'm happy with my answer. So, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, again, so you know, I hope, uh, listener, the message we've imparted today about um, having some fun with the life and times of Raphael Meshulam is, is valuable. You know, his career started with some crude material, and he reached the top one percent of the research field as a whole in the world. Um, again, receiving uh, twenty five. Over 25 research career awards. Um, some people say he was in line to get a Nobel Prize, but they don't give those posthumously. Um, but he, he looked at a tremendous number of things, and his original paper, which isolated, um, you showed the identification of endocannabinoids, I think has been cited like 10,000 times in the literature, which is just an amazing accomplishment. Um, so, all right. Uh, well, that'll wrap up our game. I'll say uh, everyone wins a prize today. Everyone gets a trophy. Congratulations. <laughs> but we'll be right back with our next story about inflation of THC values. Um, what the good, the bad, and the ugly about that. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Lorian Chavez from the Shakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines, inviting you to join us for our second Queering Psychedelics Conference at the Bravo Theater in San Francisco on April 22nd and 23rd. For more information or to register, please visit us at shakruna.net. 
That's C-H-A-C-R-U-N-A dot net. We hope to see you there. All right, welcome to the popular literature discussion. This is the non-peer-reviewed section of the show where we'll be talking about the practice of engorging THC values. And away we go. Chicanery, bamboozle, a boondoggle. A reckoning is upon the cannabis industry listener. You know, there are so many good apples out there in the industry, but it just takes a few nasty ones to spoil the whole crop. And I think for years, for years and years and years, we've all been hearing about the extreme potency of cannabis. Everyone has told us it's extra strength, but it might be filled with extra lies. <laughs> I hope that's, that's good enough for some shock jock uh, coverage there. But a new civil lawsuit in Arkansas uh, points to the largest cannabis testing lab of conspiring with a medical marijuana cultivator to inflate the amount of THC in certain products. Uh, An elderly chronic patient is targeting a a team and a laboratory down in Arkansas, and this complaint was filed, which just says that... um, you know, raises a lot of questions. It allocate, I don't want to name names. I'll leave that to the, the participants today. But the suit alleges that the lab inflated the amount of THC in products, um, what, you know, and the cultivators use that as an incentive. And so this is a quote from the suit. It says, marijuana flower with higher concentration of THC is more valuable. So there's an incentive to exaggerate the THC content of flower. It can be sold for more money. As a result, cultivators often choose a lab that reports the highest THC value a phenomenon known as lab shopping. The laboratory denied the allegations and said the company would seek to have it dismissed. Again, this litigation is likely to garner attention across the U.S. as it claims mirror-growing concerns about THC inflation and lab shopping. Um, And it turns out that consumers and sick people don't like paying for THC that isn't in their products. Um, so in some ways, I feel like the industry is creating their own problems. I mean, if we think about all the opposition to cannabis reform, it's always about, ooh, the super potent cannabis. And it's like, well, the labs are putting out inflated THC values. Um, you know, I don't know quite what the cure is for cannabis inflation. Is it more cannabis, larger sample or batches? Uh, you know, Dave, I want to go to you, you know, you're a quality guy. Is this something we can just smoke our way out of, or, um, are there other, um, approaches that we could do. What, what's your take on this issue? Um, w- the industry seems to be uh, smoking their way out of it, or at least putting up the smoke screen and acting like it's not a problem, uh, is what I would certainly say. Uh, you know, b- but in all seriousness, this problem is really complex. And every state has, you could probably just go through every state and point out where the weak links are that folks are able to essentially exploit it, whether intentionally or not. And it you know, starts with one, I'm pretty sure this is a plant, right? This is a botanical plant. And there's a ton of research supporting that the top of the plant to the bottom of the plant has quite a wide variability in the actual cannabinoid concentration in the buds. Um, I actually saw a recent study uh, performed, a uh, recent uh, set of results shared on LinkedIn by a laboratory in British Columbia showing that size exclusion matters, you know, uh, smaller buds, larger buds. And I don't know, folks that are involved in the actual mechanics process and for folks that perhaps aren't involved in the process of 
you know, cultivating and harvesting uh, and you know, preparing these products for packaging, depending on how you're actually trimming it, are you losing the keef on uh, the trichomes? Uh, you know, how, how are you actually collecting that? And then how are you taking that sample? Is it a 10 pound batch that we're calling a batch and you're taking one sample and the biggest bud? Or are you looking at the different size of the buds? There's just, and that's just the tip of the iceberg that turns translates into send the one bud to the laboratory and I'm you know oversimplifying but essentially one sample that we don't even know if it's representative and saying here's the result and slap that label on and send it to the marketplace and there's plenty of research that has shown both federally federally shown research independent research that something like 9 to 50 percent uh, below label claims is uh, what folks are seeing. Um, there's lab testing inconsistencies. Everybody thinks they've got the best test method, having worked in an analytical testing lab for several years before actually getting into the cannabis industry. There's there's analytical uh, measurements of uncertainty, and folks aren't really characterizing that. So it's just a it's just a straight up disaster. And um, there's, I'm sure, a lot of ways around this, uh, from water activity and moisture content controlling that, which there's a standard on, to maybe a taxation uh, perspective that I know we've talked about before, and I think Illinois and maybe New York has it, where it's you know a progressive tax on uh, the active or you know intoxicating cannabinoid. So that's just the tip of my soapbox iceberg. Um, let's, uh, I'll pause there, let others jump in. Oh, that, that's fantastic, Dave. You know, I love the taxes thing because I think we've had that theory that if they were to tax cannabis on the amount of cannabis percentage, uh, it would drop precipitously <laughs> um, in the testing scores. That's been our thing. But just real quick follow up, Dave. Is this testing issue, a, a does it affect all cannabis products equally? Is it more affect flour? Does it more affect edibles? Because flour is like reported in percent THC and when I look at edibles, it's in milligram amounts. And so does it, does, mm. it, does it matter the product, do you think, or is this something that affects the entire product chain? The issue is more focused on flour because of what you just described. But when you look at the laboratory issues and the, uh, the lack of consistent test methods across the space, there is opportunity for error with edibles. But I would actually argue that if the issue was with just the lab test method itself, um, you would see it across the spectrum of products, but really this is, this is on the flower side. Interesting. Interesting. That's, that's fascinating. All right. We're going to go to Dr. Hartzell now. Uh, you know, Josh, you were one of the first people in the world to open a cannabis testing laboratory um, in the United States, uh, you know, one of the OGs in this space. And I'm sure you've come across uh, all sorts of complaints from customers that range from, I know it's more potent, I know it's less potent, I know there's something special in there, that's not my cannabis, or that is my cannabis. Like, I'm sure you've had all sorts of things. Is this a inflated issue, or is, it, or is, this, a, is this something that, like, you had to contend with with competitors as well, like giving a, like, I imagine you know, the, with the reputation you have, like giving a reliable result and you have to compete with made up results, um, it probably is frustrating. But again, from someone who's actually worked in the lab, was this uh, something that's been on your radar for a long time and there's not much you can do about it? Or is you think this issue is just, uh, it's, it's over, it's overhyped. Like the, the THC lab shopping thing isn't a, as a big deal as people make it out to be. It's just a few bad actors. Like, like what, what's your kind of take when you see, you know, people threatening to sue over these lab values and stuff like that. 
Um, yeah, I'm glad you set me up with that sort of framework here because my opinion on this has really evolved over the years. Uh, I can tell you when I first got involved in the industry in 2010, um, when I would go to a dispensary, they would honestly just tell me flat out, why am I going to pay you to tell me how good my weed is? I already know how good it is. I smoke it every day. I mean, that was the sort of barrier that I was running up into at that time. And, um, at the time I didn't get it because I thought for sure these people would want to know how much THC is in their product. I guess my modern thinking about it is that I don't place much value in the regulatory framework to begin with, because if you think about like the testing lab, uh, the levels of pesticide and all these things are so overblown in my opinion. If you were to go into a grocery store and buy a tomato, it's probably got 10 times more pesticides in it than it would be in a cannabis product. And you eat them on a daily basis every day. So, you know, I, I think there's a problem with like the government coming in here and like putting all these regulations in place. And I would argue now that, yeah, why do I need to look at that? Because the THC numbers, you know, there's like 15 to 20% variance in, uh, in the, from lab to lab or what is even acceptable. So, um, should you be buying your cannabis based on how much THC percentage is on the package? I would say, no, you should smell it. You should look at it and you should be like, oh, I like the way that, that you know, the sensation that I get from that flower. So kind of go with a gut check about the product. Um, in addition to whatever information is available, but just looking at one criteria, um, I don't, yeah, I think you're right. I think that like, you know, you might have a high THC rating, but if you look at it and you can see like a shoe imprint from someone <laughs> stepping on it, you might be like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, and I thought it was, it was interesting. You, you know, you, you know, I had that experience too, um, doing some testing in the industry where they'd be like, oh, we don't want to pay for testing. Uh, and, you know, the brain is a good gas chromatograph, but typically it can only do about one sample a day. So it's not very high throughput. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's a thank you, Josh, for that. That's, um, I definitely would have more questions, but I want to give Nigam a chance to talk. Um, and I know, Nigam, on this podcast, we talk a lot about everything from policy to science to who's on first. But who is on first when it comes to this? Um, we talk a lot about derelictions of responsibilities by agencies, whether it's public health agencies, federal agencies, when it comes to appropriately regulating cannabis. We just heard Dr. Hartzell talking about his, some of his frustrations with that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a loaded question down the plate, Nigam. Who dodges responsibility the most efficiently in the government when it comes to Who's responsible for this? Who's pointing? Who does the most finger pointing? Like, it's not me. It's the other two guys. I just give out the licenses. I just, you know, I just inspect the lab. I don't tell them how to do it. Like, like I guess in your opinion, who's responsible and who's dodging it? Yeah, well, okay. Let me start with uh, the source article that we're going to post um, with the episode. So this was in Marijuana Moment, and it says, Arkansas medical marijuana patient Sue's testing lab and growers over alleged THC inflation. So that's the headline in marijuana moment. And um, <clears throat> turns out as you get into the article that this individual who filed the suit is an elderly um, medical cannabis patient who has pain issues. So it's someone who has a, you know, a uh, stakeholder as we say, and they had actually interestingly, filed a class action lawsuit on the federal level for a similar issue and they actually so you have to like have a have a claim that you can stand behind so their prior claim they actually uh made allegations under the 
RICO Act. And for folks who are not familiar with RICO, this is uh, short for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. So this is like really the government puts this in place for taking down organized crime. That's what it's for. Um, Syndicates of people doing bad things. So this elderly medical cannabis patient in pain went to the trouble of filing filing a lawsuit at the federal level under the RICO Act saying that cannabis testing labs are committing an organized crime against patients like him. So... Okay, so I've kind of gone like way up to like the highest level of who is derelicting their duty here. To zoom back in on Arkansas, um, the article really has some shocking quotes. Um, and just from a PR perspective, you know, someone should advise these these people to just not take interviews. But I guess for transparency, it's nice for us and for our listeners that they do take interviews because, uh, in brief. Uh, the reporter uh, for Marijuana Moment reached out to the two government bodies in Arkansas who deal with licensing for cannabis. And one of those bodies is Alcoholic Beverage Control Division, and the other is the Department of, uh, excuse me, is the Department of Health. So, and here's the quotes. The quote is from Alcoholic Beverage Control Division, The agency had received a complaint about THC prior to the litigation, but ABC does not have regulatory authority over the laboratories. We don't have the ability to retest product or the authority to take action against the lab. Okay. I I do like that follow-up to that quote, though, Nick. I'm just going to jump in there. I love the follow-up. I say, however, we have weekly meetings. And I'm like, well, that's great if you're planning an office birthday party, but we have... Or, or if you're, or if you're committing organized crime, yeah, for you know, cons- conspiracy, yeah, they're great. So, you need uh, them. <laughs> okay, so I should, I should walk that back a little bit. Uh, I, I am not, um, I'm not making any accusations against these agencies. I'm, I'm just reading the quotes off this article. So, anyways, the end, the end is that, then, um, uh, they go and they request a quote from, uh, the Department of Health communications director who says. We do not perform checks. That's the whole quote about what they do with labs. They do not perform checks. So um, anyways, okay, so back to, uh, I'll just say my own thoughts here. And in, in this plugs in with what Josh was saying. There definitely is an interesting dynamic in the cannabis industry where there's this need and this urge somehow societally to burden it with taxation and regulation above and beyond other areas. And somehow with the extra burden, we still don't have a product label that makes any sense. We still don't have oversight that makes any sense. And we, I mean, we could just go around around the merry-go-round on this podcast and just for the next six hours listing things that don't make sense. Right. So, um, this is, uh, I, I was going to say this is shocking, but having been in the industry for some time, it's it's um yep. it's painfully normal. Yeah, and I, I'd say that, you know, it's if we went around, I think there are some states and some, like I said, there's a lot of good talent here. Some of it's on this podcast and some of it is in our network. We know people, labs that I've definitely visited, I've used for studies on like CBD products that I know are top notch. There's 
There's labs that seek out the highest premier accreditation for their methods of analysis, and there's those that find the slimiest and shadiest independent accreditation agencies to meet the minimum requirements. And, and I think we always have to remember, too, that these regulators are human beings. They don't, you know, after being in a meeting for six hours about regulations, put on a cape and fly over to the next jurisdiction to try and, like, save you money on buying cannabis. Um you know, they are human beings and they're paid very little money. Like if you saw some of these salaries are like forty, fifty thousand dollars a year to do a job that everyone will hate you for. It's, it's not a huge motivator. And I think like their powers are limited. I mean, um, and I think we see that all the time. And I think there is some confusion, Nigam. I think you did a good time pointing out of who's responsible. I mean, if you go to any a stakeholder meeting hosted by a department of health that runs cannabis. Everyone's like, what are you doing about illicit cannabis? What are you doing about these hemp shops? What are you doing about these things that are outside of your, your purview? <laughs> but, uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's interesting that it's come to this. It'll be interesting to see what happens because if the labs are following the laws and the regulations, I don't think that, that there's much of uh, that the consumer can do. Um, you know, Dave, I want to toss it back to you. You know, you probably have visited the most facilities we have seen, you know, do you think this is a good like like thing for the industry to be addressing now? What are your kind of thoughts on this? If you had a client come to you and said like, oh, I can't trust the labs. Look at these labs. They're just giving me what I want to hear, you know? I mean, I think it's a really important issue for us to address as an industry because of everything we just discussed here thus far. And, you know, to your point, Jehan, like, these are all humans and there are so many confounding factors like it's, it's not the labs the labs in many states are used as the scapegoats like they're because oh data is you know data is something tangible we can hold on to that is a big difference then back to josh your point of like yeah in 2010 they're like oh it smells good i i know my my lab my weed's the best quality like <clears throat> give me some data behind it so then the that's the only data in some cases besides track and trace that the that the state regulators can get their hands on so they can use that against things. Um, they're also, to your point, a lot of states are and departments are limited statutorily by what they can do because of like the legislative, uh, you know, the laws that are created, like their, their hands are tied with what they can do. I've seen, I've seen states where it's like, you don't even have a scientist on staff. So you don't have anybody with the basic background to be able to address the issue even if they had the authority and back to why this matters because what what does this all come back to consumer confidence trust in public safety there's none of that i would argue like you can't you can't trust the labels because of all these issues and it's it's systemic it's not the labs issue it's not just the regulators issue so yeah when somebody comes to me I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do right now to solve it. Like that's within your power as a cultivator or as a lab. You are, you are subject to this entire issue that I don't understand how we aren't all on the same page, how we don't all want this to like, we don't want to have to be competing with people that are getting creative outside of the lens of the regulations to, you know, prep their sample in a way that gives them optimal results and other bit, you know, so that they lose, you know, the ones that aren't doing that lose business as a lab. Um, and as a, as a cultivator, they, they've got competition. They want their results to be accurate and they want their neighbors and their competitors to be accurate too and not inflated. So how is this not something we can't all just get on board with and fix together? I don't know. Maybe I live in a utopia. 
<laughs> or a future utopia where products are accurately labeled and people get what they pay for. Um, I absolutely, um, you know, I agree with those sentiments a, a lot, Dave. Um, and I feel like it's it's a good thing for the industry to check in with this. I think this is a healthy part of discourse before we, you know, move into federal regulation potentially in the coming years. Um, get these things ironed out right now. Um, and I think if you're if you're a company and you're looking at getting your product tested, you know, nothing is wrong with getting it tested by two different labs to see what results you get. Um, and and I think the more testing you do, the better. Um, you know, there's a reason why when you play darts, you know, you get three of them and not just one. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's always good to do multiple testing. And, and Josh, to close out the segment, I just wanted to go to you real quick uh, for a quick question. With your experience, if someone was looking at lab shopping, you know, and saying trying to get the highest THC percentage, what would you tell that operator? Like, like just simply, like, would you say just, you know, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want? Or would you say, you know, you really should think about X or Y before you go lab shopping? Like, like how do you as a, as a business person make a decision about the lab you work with? Is there like, do you have like a principle that you could share like about looking for a good lab? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the uh, patient focus certification program that you rent was one of the top uh, organizations that I ever uh, dealt with. And, you know, I just want to touch on this topic because coming from a different perspective, I don't know if you remember, but when I was the director of research and development at uh, Canavas, they had, I worked for some pretty slimy guys, but they had done really the first CBD operation. And Martin Lee published an article called the hemp oil hustlers that I was specifically implicated in because there were some patients that had gotten oil and they had taken it to labs and these labs were so early on they didn't know what they were doing they claimed that their kids were getting sick from the oil so luckily i had retention samples i had an internal hblc so i did all my own testing and then i sent it out on top of that so we had third-party verification so this whole claim that was brought against our company, I had to defend that. And in fact, at the end of it, Martin Lee and I became friends. And I think he came around to understand that, hey, you know, I was running the lab and we were doing good work. Um, but I think this is just a different perspective on what you're talking about is whether labs are producing because you could be on the other end of it where they're not there. You know, they're like a mother comes and says, my kid got sick from this. And then they claim there's heavy metals in it or something like that. And then you know, it could be a nightmare for you from a business perspective. But um, to answer your question about this, I mean, I don't think the onus is on the business owner. I mean, I can't blame them for wanting to show the highest results. The onus is on the labs and it's unethical. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, I'm, I qualify my statement earlier. I could see, you know, why I don't want the regulation and whatnot. But I think that if a company is going to be involved in the industry, it's their duty to post accurate results. Right. Um, and I don't understand why the margin of error is so high. There's no reason they can't produce tighter numbers uh, and. I mean, even early on, you remember the ACCL, the American California yeah. or the California Cannabis Association? Yeah, they did that round had, robin testing. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, we had ring tests in that one. No, that that's that's absolutely great because I think that's great because you say, you know, it's a responsibility to be accurate, as accurate as possible and, and to the best of your ability. And I think that that's, that's fair. And I think we should, you know, to help your vision come true, Josh, they should allow repeat testing. They should allow all this stuff in the industry, uh, reprocessing of products. If you get a weird test result, 
like let's do it again let's make sure it's right um i don't know if i like the one and done testing procedures or I, I i would i would i think we should encourage labs to get multiple or, or not labs but encourage labs to do multiple testing and encourage those companies incentivize them somehow to get the products tested at regular intervals and you know the sample retention josh is huge that's such a great point i mean think of how much coca-cola is made in the world and coca-cola saves batches of that for years just in case someone's like oh i found a finger in my coca-cola like they're like well let's go see if we can find anything else in that batch you know so there, there's all sorts of um you know reasons for that sample retention i think that that's that's great um you know nigam you are uh as co-pilot on this podcast, I'm going to let you close out this segment. Unless, you know, Dave, you're always welcome to to throw in a burning comment. But, but Nigam, final thoughts? I did have a final thought listening to Josh there that I do want to make a few kind of clarifying statements. One is that I do believe in testing for safety purposes as Josh brought up, I mean, obviously we don't want people being sick or dealing with a contamination that could have been purely accidental. I mean, there, there is, I would say good cause to test for safety reasons in consumer products. That makes sense. Um, the, uh, other thing I wanted to say is actually just supporting what you were saying, Jahan, is that, uh, by by reading by reading the comments off of this article and these quotes, I really was not trying to beat down on you know public servants who are working hard you know jobs that are underpaid, underappreciated. Most you know I think a lot of people have good intentions and are probably doing their best uh, to support the industry. So I really am not am not trying to get down on people and in you know. It may just be bad luck that they were the ones that got quoted in this article. But so while I definitely have appreciation for those people, um, there is a, a systematic issue and it goes beyond just the labs. It goes to, cause like, here's, here's another one. And this is where I think I'll leave it is that if the consumer for whatever reason was not obsessed with THC, then this wouldn't be an issue. Well said. Well said. I think that consumer education is critical. Absolutely, Nigam. I'll just give my two final two cents here. I mean, it's it's everything. It's consumer education. It's the labs. It's the cultivators. It, it how why do we have send one sample into the lab and expect that to be the result? The lab can only do what they can do with the sample that they have been provided. Everybody needs to own this problem, and it's because of you know legal protections. It's protecting your your business and your brand with sample retentions, making sure you have a representative sample so that you can go back and recourse, and then having to be able to being able to show the data to show that you did it right. And there's, you know, it, and the and when we look to a federal framework or an international framework, this is a U.S. to an extent a Canadian problem too for sure. But this is not an issue in a pharmaceutical world. You don't you don't go get your Tylenol and be like, oh, I hope it's 400 milligrams in there. Like, you know that it's 400 milligrams. That is not acceptable. So if we're going to call this medicine and we want truth and trust in consumers, we need to know that this is within a margin of error and we've got some work to do. Absolutely. I love it. And for those of you who are wondering uh, how can you tell 
uh, different science disciplines apart. I'll just let you know if it's green and it wiggles, it's biology. If it doesn't work, it's physics. And if it stinks, it's chemistry. <laughs> All right, that, we're going to wrap up our segment here. And we'll be right back after a short break with our peer-reviewed article on the economics of 420. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. All right, for this episode's peer-reviewed publication, we will discuss an article entitled The Effects of the 420 Cannabis Holiday and Adult-Use Cannabis Legalization on Medical Cannabis Sales and Medical Cannabis Patient Registration in Arizona, published in the International Journal of Drug Policy by researchers from Arizona State University and the University of Oxford. Now, these researchers looked at week-to-week sales of cannabis over the course of a few years, and they found some interesting trends, but mostly they just quantified cannabis sales and used statistical analysis to look at different trends. Um, Researchers hypothesized that the sales of marijuana would increase during the 420 holiday and that the passage of legalization laws would decrease medical cannabis sales and they posited on a number of other theories why these things might occur. And for those of you who don't know, April 20th is the one day a year where cannabis users across the country intend to spend the day celebrating cannabis culture. April 20th, most of all, it is a day uh, people intend to use cannabis all day long, which I am sure is in stark contrast to how they spend the 19th. Oddly, the researchers didn't have access to adult use or recreational cannabis data, um, just They talk about these 82 medical cannabis dispensaries that became legal operators. Uh, But according to Cannabis Media uh, Database, there are currently 143 active dispensaries in Arizona where this study took place, and 73 of them are located in Phoenix. So, David, uh, let's go to you first. You're the GMP quality expert. Um, You see an article like this about economics and sales. I'm thinking... are there certain professionals you think should read this? Is this a should doctors read this? Policymakers, people in the industry read this? Any anyone you would want to share this article with? Well, anybody that wants to engage in the industry and knows absolutely nothing about cannabis should <laughs> probably read it just so they can confirm that 420 is a holiday and that there are spikes in sales. Um, from a you know maybe from a half serious standpoint, from a supply chain perspective, uh, I think a lot of folks forget about this, but Um, You know, like I've got a client that realized with the Chinese New Year, if we're going to get vape pen hardware, we have to consider the Chinese New Year as a holiday period when you might have delays in addition to just COVID and life um, with supply chain issues. But 
you've got to be prepared for the sale of your products on 420 because product sales do go up quite a bit. Um, but kind of, you know, and I, I don't want to bash peer-reviewed research, and I appreciate the collection and, and presentation of the data. But yeah, did we really need to uh, do all this fancy statistical analysis to show what uh, you know what a bold hypothesis they they came up with? I mean, geez, Louise, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, in all seriousness, though, the one thing that I think uh, is an important takeaway that I got out of it is the foundational question that. I would love to hear an answer that's that's rational and uh, consensus and approach of what is the difference between medical and adult use cannabis? What is the difference? You know, it's a, it's a great question, Dave, and I think it depends on where you are in the country and the world. Sometimes it's a matter of what products you have access to, whether or not you're paying taxes or excise tax, I should say. So that was one of the things in, in Arizona. The patients don't have to pay the, the excise tax, um, but you still also have to see a doctor, pay those doctor fees, pay to register as a patient. Um, so again, it's it, it might be a trade-off. There might be not that much difference in terms of legal protections. It might be better for you if you're going through a federally controlled healthcare system to not get cannabis until it's federally approved through that system. So there could be a number, number of reasons. I, I disagree with many of their theories in the paper, but Maybe we'll 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 circle back to those. Um, you know, Josh, I want to I want to talk to you because you've worked in a lot of different areas in you know cutting edge industries, whether it's cannabis, whether it's psychedelics. I mean, you've seen it from all ends, and you know this this article talks about you know that the cannabis economy pulsates. And you, you know, do you think that's good for like a, an industry to go like thud and thump and pit a pat and is a pulsating economy like a sign of like explosive growth or refraction? I know if my heart was pulsating, I'd probably go to the ER, but I'm not, my heart is not an economic indicator. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get your sense of... Well, sure, sure. I mean, your heart does have a pulse, by the way, it does pulsate. But uh, <laughs> And also I would go on to say further that, you know, at the end of the day, this is an agricultural product um, and the agricultural industry does the same thing and it has been, it never will stop. That's just what it is. And uh, to go back to your point about like the difference between like recreational and adult use, I mean, all of this goes back to me to like reefer madness hysteria. Like it is an agricultural product. You should probably be able to go to the grocery store and buy a pound of weed without having to do any of this crazy stuff that, you know, we're discussing right now. Like, like, why does it have to be? I, I guess I'm coming from a hardcore libertarian standpoint on all this, but, you know, I just don't understand the hysteria that still persists to this day around cannabis in general. I mean, it's a plant. It doesn't hurt anyone. And um, so, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, it's, it is an agricultural product. So, yes, I think the economics will be like corn or, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, of course, we have indoor grow rooms and we have light depot and all that stuff with cannabis. But, you know, you're definitely going to have your, your seasonal flow economically of, of this product. Absolutely. This is not a McDonald's hamburger. Uh, it's not dependent on natural <laughs> ingredients to uh, be made. They just synthesize it in the back. Uh, so like, you know, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, just speaking conceptually and being sarcastic here. But yeah, I think that's a great point that we forget sometime that just because it's heavily regulated doesn't mean it's an agricultural product. It's the most heavily regulated agri agricultural product. Uh, in the United States, which is it's just like hard to wrap our brains around sometimes because it, this product is in 
so many forms and things like that. But I think that's a great point. Like this is, this is not necessarily like news to shout from the mountaintops. This is just natural for an agricultural product. So, so thank you, Josh, for that. Um, you know, Dr. Aurora Nigam, I want to go to you real quick before we open it up for some general flowing conversation. Um, are you impressed by the predictive powers of observation um, by this, you know, with this state data by these researchers? I mean, cannabis sales going up during a marijuana holiday. Next, you'll be telling me that turkey sales go up in November and beer sales increase during St. Patty's Day and Oktoberfest. I mean, what other ludicrous predictions might there be out there? <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think there's anything um, shocking. Here's what I'll say about this. Um, after uh, looking over this paper uh, relatively briefly, um, it seems to me to be one of those papers that someone got interested in cannabis and they wanted to publish something and they did that. And so cheers. There's some interesting data points in here. Um, I would say that um, my PhD advisor would not let me probably publish figure legends of this quality. Um, so that they could take a look back. Like if I was editing this, I would have made a few comments that that's kind of like some nitpicky editorial stuff. But, um, I also looked back at, so this came out of department of psychology at Arizona state. And, uh, the data was crunched by a school in, uh, the UK. So, so that's great. Like, um, it, 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 but it, it, again, it's one of these things where you have some psychology grad students who probably thought cannabis was interesting and wanted to publish something about it. It's a great article title. Um, definitely gives us something fun to talk about in April in the industry. But back to what you were kind of getting at Jahan, uh, let me speak to a few of the actual trends instead of just uh, talking from 30,000 feet about it. Um, so we see uh, little spikes um, the week before 420. Yeah, it's a sale. In in uh, Jahan, you had mentioned something earlier. It might have been offline. Is it the holiday or is it just that they have a sale at the dispensary? I think that's a great point. They might just be like, oh, hey, I get a discount, you know, maybe they should check veterans day for cannabis sales too, you know, like, right. And, and the thing that's interesting is if, uh, you look, there's also a downtick on the weeks after, right. Cause everyone went and bought like six times the amount of weed they were going to buy. Um, <laughs> so anyways, um, the other, the thing that I thought was the most interesting, just as some rather straightforward, uh, data shows us here is the, drop off of the renewal of the medical uh cards and that transition um from volume in the legal market in Arizona from medical to rec uh, I'm not super right. up to date on the Arizona regs but in most states Jahan you mentioned this uh the there's some pros and a cons to the med side the pros are Generally, you don't pay tax. 
Uh, the cons are you have to maintain a card. You have to see a healthcare provider. You have to pay a fee for that card. In some of these states, um, yeah, you don't pay tax, but it's uh, it's really just a fee for service. And there's healthcare providers out here who are just farming medical cards because they know people don't want to pay tax. And it's not really a medical service. Right. It's just kind of this weird loophole. So anyways, um, and it goes back to like our prior segment. Somehow every wheel has to get reinvented in cannabis and we have to have these different silos for everything. But I want to go back to something that I personally care about. I know we all care about here on the podcast is that really what it should be about is it should be about patients first. It should be about cannabis as medicine first. And then after that, it should be about safety uh, and regulated product for consumers. So, um, you know, what am I seeing in this paper? I'm seeing some, rough economic data interpreted by some psychology grad students. And, and please forgive me. I, I'm not super familiar with these authors. I'm just guessing. Um, but the rigor is hitting me in about a uh, standard kind of 420 kind of way. Yeah. You know, it's not really uh, blowing me away with the scientific rigor or, uh, or the findings. Like consumers are responding to incentives yeah. for sales. Like what? Is that new? <laughs> you don't think it'll catch on in other industries. Um, <laughs> oh, marketing. I do think I do just to like cap my spiel. I feel like I like spiel so long whenever I get the mic, but just to cap my spiel, I think the most interesting thing out of this is the dynamic that we've seen state after state. Cause you know, how do the states go? They go from prohibition to medical to wreck to then the black market boosts back up after the initial surge. So all these states go through the cycle. So I think that's the thing that I find the most interesting as, as like a talking point out of this is that um, is is that dynamic and what it means for consumers and what it means for the the industry um, so far as like the people who work in it and the standard. Absolutely. Um, I'd like some of the things you said there, Nigam, and I think you know, the thing about the doctors is there's some good doctors out there that are able to provide information and guide patients, and then there's some that are farming it. And why am I spending all this money to have a healthcare professional not provide useful advice? I can get the same not useful advice from a brand ambassador of a cannabis company. You know, so I think like for, for people who are getting what they need of the clinician to help them get the most out of their medicine, I think we're going to always see a, a, a plateau, a certain percentage even out of patients who are seeking that. There's one other thing too that despite their like, I'm going to call it, it's a, it's a, lame, a lame hypothesis um, you know, that they put out there, they also make some claims in this that they then do not support at all with any data. And one of them is that their, their reasoning why medical cannabis sales decreased upon legalization and this is in the paper, is that medical cannabis patients stopped buying excess cannabis to sell to their friends. That is, that is one of the things. And they could have checked this data out and accessed the legalization sales data, but they didn't corroborate their data with the, le- the adult use, the recreational sales. They just looked, oh, medical cannabis sales went down because medical cannabis patients stopped diverting it from the market. I'm like who are you people like you you have this lame ass hypothesis that you designed a paper around then you make this like wild accusation criminalizing patients with no there'll be no follow-ups <laughs> and then you just like drop the mic and end your paper um uh, but uh you know josh i want to go back to you you know i'm sure you're familiar with 
you know, I know you've worked with a lot of um, brands and different products. Definitely, you know, we, we mentioned um, the Wu-Tang Clan connection there. And so, you know, having run a lab, I'm sure you've worked with a lot of brands. There's marketing, there's sales. Um, and some of this is important for people to identify products that have a certain quality. But again, I just want to go back to you, toss the mic to you about um, this article. Yeah, I, you know, it made me think of um, 710 because a lot of people don't know that either. That's another international cannabis holiday that uh, is like a more, I guess, underground, if you will. But, you know, obviously the word 710, when you spin it upside down, spells oil. So it's the international concentrate smoking time. And July 10th Whoa. is the, uh, so, I mean, what, what happens then? The concentrate sales goes up. And it just it made me think, you know, obvious marketing, I mean, around different things. I mean, St. Patrick's Day, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously people are going to be buying beer, right? Or uh, so, I mean, and then and then what made me think my final thoughts about it were when they made that conclusion about, oh, people are diverting. It's like, so what? You know, it's it's just that sort of mentality that like really <laughs> bugs me about like this whole thing about um, cannabis is uh you know, it really needs to be normalized. It's like my, my concluding thoughts would be that. It's like there's no difference between smoking cannabis or drinking a beer. Uh, probably is even better for you. I was going to say there is a difference. It's better. <laughs> it's safer. That's why they need a that's why they need a real economist on here because the first thing you're going to ask is, I don't know if these people realize, medical cannabis is expensive. Um <laughs> So it, it, the the thought of diverting medical cannabis in any in any kind of economically meaningful way, even for an individual, is pretty backwards. Well, I mean, to your point, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the illicit market sales and what you know. I see data what between like twenty and fifty or sixty percent of even uh, programs state per uh, states where there are programs for access are still purchased on the illicit market. So yeah, I don't, I don't see there's any, in addition to just no back, uh, you know, support of the, uh, the claims that they've made of, they're just diverting it. Like that's just garbage. And it continues the reefer madness narrative. And I take umbrage with just the first sentence. Maybe I'm being too picky uh, here. And we're just tearing these people apart, but medical cannabis use is increasingly popular. Why do we use the word popular? Is it just more recognized? Is it more respected finally in in our society? Like, <laughs> what is it running for office? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, I, th I think that's it's increasingly popular. Um, you know, I, not according to their paper, it isn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, there go. Yep, there you it's go. not. And uh, you know, it just shows you what happens when you have too many cooks. I was just let you know, it took eight authors and a grant across two countries to determine that sales do indeed increase um, by about 120.3 pounds a day um, from the, you know, the week of April 20th. So we'll see if this holds true out just outside of Arizona. Who knows what happens in California or other places? I know that, you know, Josh, you know, your comment about you know, about the pulsating market being a natural, you know, it's starting to like harken back to my days living in California. And I remember, um, you know, the harvest time in the fall, like cannabis prices would plummet by the pound. Um, all this stuff would be coming down the hills um, as we came into fall. I think it was like Croptober, isn't that what it was called or something like that? 
where all those products would come come down the hill and, and the, the prices would fluctuate, right? Um, so I think that maybe that's a sign of a healthy and robust economy. Um, I wish there was, again, they had done a more detailed analysis and, and maybe looked at like some of these other things. Let's look at, like you said, 710. Let's look at Christmas. Let's, you know, are people like, oh, crap, I got to go see my relatives. Better stock up on edibles. You know, that would have been really cool to see. But Nigam, um, I know you have a lot of stories about working in the cannabis space as well. Well, I was just gonna I was just gonna make a quip on what you were just saying. Uh how about a control of any kind? Like alcohol or, or cigarettes or newspapers or or, a, or Christmas. Just a general validating scientific method control, right? Uh, no, yeah, any let's see, like like Valentine's Day and roses or something, you know? Black Friday and TVs. I don't know. Oh yeah, because you're right. Because then we could see an order of magnitude comparison. Because right now we just have this one thing. We don't really know if that's like, is that statistically significant increase in sales compared to other industries? I think that's a, such a great point. Yeah. I'm not a statistician and I'm not an economist, but I don't think any of the people on the paper were either. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. Burn. I'm just kidding. I believe uh, <laughs> I, one of them is at least a statistician and did data visualization. I think uh, uh, Madeline Meyer did did some, you know, the formal analysis here, but uh, everyone else just did writing, reviewing, and editing. And uh, wow, I mean, set to, uh, wow. I want to know who's responsible for some of these sentences. Who's taken responsible? <laughs> I'm more I'm more worried about the figure legends, as I already mentioned. Um, really threw me for a curveball. Oh, do you like uh, figure two where they just kind of took a Sharpie and drew in another part of the graph? <laughs> oh, gosh. No, I, Isn't that what Trump did? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> when I was talking about rigor earlier, there's something to be said. Like, I remember being a student and being an undergrad researcher and going, you know, proudly with my data and my graph to my professor, my PI. And I actually had two PIs and uh, saying, oh, hey, look, I'm so proud. Pat me on the back. And they're just kid. You know, where are your air bars? Where is your figure legend? Why are there lines in this? This looks terrible. You know, go uh, go work on this for a week and come back. And so anyways, um, this uh, I had some memories. Okay, so I had two comments I wanted to make too. That of course, different states, different markets, different sizes. But when I kept reading about this, about the amounts of cannabis that they were mentioning, it's like, these are just rounding errors in the California market. I mean, in single counties in California, just rounding errors. Granted, biggest market on earth, so on and so forth. But um, that came to mind. The other thing that just uh, struck me, uh, this this doesn't uh, have to do with this paper, but I just thought it was kind of a funny thing to share. Um, so I was... Uh, I went to a uh, yoga class followed by a sound bath with one of my favorite yoga teachers um, on the 17th of March. And uh, I don't really drink. And uh, it I didn't, I didn't realize it was St. Patrick's Day. It's not, I'm not Irish. I don't really drink. It wasn't really on my agenda. And so uh, after the sound bath, we went out to get a bite, bite to eat at a place that also served beer. 
and we were sitting at kind of like one of these long communal tables and I had this funny experience where I looked over and there was uh, there's a group and there's a guy wearing his you know they're all wearing green that's when I realized right when I look over and I'm saying wow all these people are wearing green Uh, what's 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 going on and there was this guy and he looked so miserable and this goes back to Dave saying there is a difference between alcohol and cannabis this guy looked so miserable and he was just pounding this beer like it was just uh like it was just an obligation <laughs> brought upon him <laughs> by the holiday of St. Patrick's Day and then I'm just like you know you know trying not to bother people just e- eating my food and, and chatting with my uh with my friends a little bit and uh and five minutes later I look over again and the guy's got a new beer and <laughs> looks twice as miserable and he's just going and just going at it so that reminded me um when we were just talking Did his about frown eventually <laughs> turn upside down nigga I mean no this guy was frowning hard and um so but it just reminded me when we were talking about and we could go down another rabbit hole about consumerism and the mentality around commercial holidays and yeah. consumerism in a lot of different regards right but consu- consumption of sub substance um food on thanksgiving alcohol on saint patrick's day cannabis on 420 um so i didn't have like a strong endpoint to that story but the saint patrick's day talk the alcohol versus cannabis talk um the uh you know talk of of some potentially um poor decisions made in the drafting of this paper just yeah. kind of reminded me of that story and it Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> wanted to share yeah, and I think, you know, the the other thing that does a disservice to this paper is that they don't really, it's really, they say the, the line between medical cannabis and, and adult use cannabis or legalization is blurred. I, I think the way they counted the numbers is blurry because they were literally documenting 82 of the access points were becoming adult use. And they make no accountability to how many locations they were looking at. It would have been interesting if they would have said, we're only going to look at places that stayed medical cannabis operations, not places that had two separate lines in the same store. And, and, you know, like, I think that that's an interesting thing. Well, and just briefly on to your point, uh, to call them out again, they, they said something like Arizona is the only like state that gives out this data or something like I, I live in Colorado. I'm looking at their annual report right now. They put out uh, semi-annual reports and here we go. We've got sales totals from 2014 to date. So yeah, we can we can look at this on on bigger scales as well, and I know headsets yeah. also done a lot of really great data analysis. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, and I think to your point that I think they got their number wrong about the number of medical cannabis patients in the United States. It's like they say, oh, it's two million, and cite one reference from several years ago. It's like actually, it's more like at least five million people are registered in a database, not just have a card, not just have a script, but are actually registered in an electronic database and searchable. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to, I'm going to defend these guys. Uh, and I'll, I just want to, it was a fair and balanced show. I just want to jump in and defend <laughs> them because it really goes back to what we were talking about earlier. And in, in my opinion, it's kind of the theme of kind of what I've been saying is the real problem is, uh, the regulation because in order for them to get funding for this grant, they had to appeal to NIDA and they had to show why the drug is harmful. That's the way they, so they weren't even able, even if they wanted to, to frame it in a context of here's how cannabis can be helpful. Mm. You're right. They had a substance use and addiction translational research network grant, um, which that's probably why they say, uh, you know, oh, cannabis sales are going up. Therefore, people are misusing it. um, And and therefore, we need, uh, you know, more 
more more help for cannabis use disorder. Um, it would have been interesting if they had included some information about what is cannabis use disorder and and what are the rates of it. But it just it just seemed like you said like they were so willing to fill in the blank with the buzzwords about cannabis safety and the risks without actually providing much substance there. So, you know, I think that, yeah, this is a, this is a culmination. I like this culmination of difficult to navigate regulations and a, a lack of a clear, I think, consistent data stream that, and, and I think some of it is terminology, right? Like we're still struggling with terminology. I mean, in the, some regulations, marijuana is spelled with a hard H, you know, some regulations spelled with a J, some use the term cannabis. You have medical marijuana laws in New York with an H, but the Office of Cannabis, you know, Management, like, is that the same thing? We don't know. <laughs> we're left to, to figure it out. Um, so... Uh, I know we spent a bit of time on this research paper, and we've had some fun picking it apart. But this is this is part of the science thing: as we go back and forth. And I have to tell you, as much fun as I've had poking holes in this paper, this is going to be one that I'm going to be sharing with people and referencing because it does have some economic data. It does point to concerns that operators have. Like there are states right now that probably want to go adult use. But these companies have spent a ton of money, a ton of time, training staff, meeting all these standards that are like FDA quality. Look at New York's rules for medical cannabis products. It's like pharmaceutical level. Now they're going into adult use. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We haven't even recouped our costs from the 80% taxes we pay on this product. And now I'm going to have all this competition that doesn't have to follow these rules. So I think like, yeah, the regulations have created a bit of a mess. And I think I think that the operators who have been following regulations um, probably are a little worried. So I think there is a little bit of doom and gloom in this article, but again, I don't think it paints a whole picture. I, I agree they need comparators in here. It'd be great to break it down a little bit by products or locations. Um, but again, I think that, that we're going to be seeing this paper used in discussions about the future economics of states transitioning into these dual markets. Um, and so I think, that, think it is something to consider is how can we help those operators in this transition so they don't just fall off the face of the earth. Um, to, oh, I was just going to chime in with, uh, this is what I always do, right? I, I hit it hard and then I soften at the end. Um, we should probably go soft and then hard in the future because the people who publish this will probably stop listening about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh anyways um no i was just gonna say i i do appreciate what you were saying jayhan and what josh was saying too that and and i and i'm kind of flashing back to prior when we've had um <clears throat> less than uh spectacular publications uh and, and it's hard to put out a spectacular publication but um when we've when we've had critical reviews before that um in the end, uh, the simple fact of collecting data, doing analysis, publishing on cannabis, like if we just put the bar at making the effort to collect data and publish on cannabis, okay, props. You know, you, get, you gave us something to talk about on the show. Uh, you're bringing forth economic data in, in a meaningful forum. So I, I, do, uh, I do appreciate these authors doing that. Absolutely. Um, and look at how much fun they've made our afternoon. Um, <laughs> all right. I'll, go, I'll let uh, any any final thoughts from the group, David, Nigam, Josh? I think I've done the damage, but I, I agree with Nigam. 
on uh let, let's give him some credit where credit is due uh maybe we could have done that at the beginning but um hopefully the audience enjoyed our uh, our fun like dissection <laughs> yeah i had a great time guys thank you so much All right. Well, listener, that's our show for today. Be sure to check out the show notes. We'll have links to all these articles and ways to check out our guests on the internet. I want to thank everyone for listening in whatever format you're accessing, clicking, tapping, however you're getting this podcast. We appreciate it. We appreciate your time. And thanks for sharing this podcast with other folks you'd think be interested. Please rate and share our episodes. We want to thank our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, who edits and mixes the show as well as all of our cover artists, whether they're real people or AI. We appreciate you. And thank you to Marku and Aurora for sponsoring this podcast. And again, be sure to check out our episode art, the show notes, podcast description, as well as the website. A lot of cool art out there. And drop us a line. We'll answer your questions here on the podcast. All right. Thank you.